Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. One of the um, theological debates that have ravaged the church for 2,000 years has been that of what we call eternal security or perseverance of the saints. Uh, We as Baptists, um, we believe that once saved, always saved. Um, That is what has been part of our historic creeds and part of what um, we have always taught However, there are people within even with our own town and denominations that have churches here that believe that it is very possible to lose your salvation. And in fact, minute by minute, you must make sure that your salvation is guaranteed and that you are the one who has to make sure um, that if you do lose your salvation, that you somehow find your way back um, to God. But even though we as Baptists believe in eternal security and we teach once saved, always saved, many of us like to still kind of teeter on that edge of whether you can lose your salvation or not. Once I uh, knew a pastor who liked to end all of his sermons by asking, asking the congregation, do you know that 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 you know you're saved? And if not, you need to come on down here right now. And nine times out of ten, we would stand there until somebody came down there to know that they knew 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 they were saved. Turns out he really wanted to increase his baptism numbers. But it is still something, I think, that really gets to the core that although we believe this, although we know that we know, and we are trusting in the gospel and trusting in the scriptures and trusting in the Christ that has taught eternal salvation... It is part of our nature, I think, to doubt and to always ask questions. But this evening, I want us to look at probably one of the more well-known events that happened during Jesus' ministry that shed some light on this aspect of eternal salvation and about why we, as believers in Christ, are not people who need to doubt our salvation but rather we are a people who can be confident in the God who has told us about our eternal security and about the fact that once we have become a believer in Christ, a true believer in Christ, we will remain so until the end of our days. If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 31 this evening. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. While you turn there, I must tell you, Brother Craig, I think you are right. About five years ago, Becky and I moved to Tifton, and there were lots of things about moving to your hometown with a new wife, 
trying to settle into a house and a family, but I think the hardest was adjusting to the gnats because they did not listen to your command. I think there's about eight up here right now. (laughs) Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel writer Mark records this. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, We have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we get started this evening. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we can come tonight and we can study your word. Lord, and we ask that as we study this event that happened in the ministry of Christ, Lord, that you would help us to be able to look and to see ourselves in what is happening here and to be able to take these truths and apply them to our lives, Lord, to help us to be able to see how through the teachings of Christ here, you have solved our greatest problems and you have fulfilled our greatest need. Lord, we ask that during this time you would keep our hearts and our minds focused upon you so that we may leave here a people who are fastly running after you, Lord, in all aspects of our life. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Here we have this ministry of Jesus that is going about. And in fact, this story is so central to the teachings of Jesus and to the teachings of the gospel that it's recorded in all three of what we call the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, if, you, if you don't know this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of overlap in the stories that they tell and the things that they record about the life um, of Jesus. 
And here is one of those stories that, that appears in all three Gospels. And in all three Gospels, the Gospel writers use this event in order to really start to shore up and start to really show for the reader what it is that the Gospel is about. And, and this aspect of the Gospel that not only starts to really make us question what some of our fundamental beliefs are, but really starts to point us to what the truths of the gospel and truths of God's holy word is. Now, we would be amiss if we did not recognize that in Mark's gospel here, whenever he starts in verse 17, he has just finished up a section where he is talking about how for us to come to Christ, we must come in childlikeness. That, that we come to him. In fact, in verse 15, he says, I'm sorry, in verse 14, he says, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such things belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them and laying his hands on them. And then he immediately gets up, and that is when this encounter takes place. And so it's not lost on his audience, and it shouldn't be lost on us as gospel readers of today, that this fits within the context of Christ teaching us something about his kingdom. And the first thing that the gospel writer does here is he starts to show us the problems that Jesus is dealing with. I want you to see here that as this scene starts to open up, there is a couple of things happening that are all intertwined. And some of them often, and I'll be honest, for a very long time, cause me some confusion. I want you to notice in verse 17, the man runs up to Jesus, and he, he starts kind of with his question, but I want you to notice the first two words that come out of his mouth. The first two words that he says to Jesus is not, hey, dude, how you're doing? He says, good teacher. But I want you to notice how Jesus responds to that in verse 18. In verse 17, Jesus is called good teacher. In verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You'll run into people every so often who will take this and they will say, well, Jesus was saying he's not God. Because he was saying that only God should be called good. And he was telling this man not to call him good. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is starting to launch into what he is going to teach about the human natural state of our hearts. Notice here, he is called good teacher, and Jesus responds in this way, pointing out to the man that if he is merely a teacher and not God, he is not good. But that if he is a good, that means that he is God. Jesus is signaling to this man, hey, you have misidentified who I am. I am not a teacher. I am the son of God. I am the one who has been spoken about from the Old Testament. I am the one who has come. And you have to resolve that in your heart first and foremost before you can have anything about what the teaching that you're about to receive. You have got to resolve who you think I am. That if I am good, I am more than a teacher. And if I am merely a teacher, I am not good. 
You can't have both good and a teacher, Jesus says, when you're talking about him. That if he is good, we have to acknowledge that he is more than a teacher. He is a prophet. He is the son of God. He is the one who has been spoken about. He is the ancient of days. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He is not saying that he is not God. He is saying that he is God and the rich young ruler here, or the rich young man, it's actually Matthew's gospel that calls him a ruler. The rich young man has misidentified who he is. And the man picks up on this. The man immediately identifies this, that this is what Jesus is saying. Because look at what he does in verse 20. When he responds to Jesus, and we're going to get to what Jesus said in just a second, I want you to see that he says, And he, meaning the rich young man, said to him, meaning Jesus, teacher. He dropped the modifier. He said, oh, well, in that case, I just see you as a teacher. I just see you as one who can show me a path that I can walk on. I just see you as one who can teach me something that I may not know, right? That's why we go to teachers, to to teach something that we may not know. He says, and he acknowledges that he does not think that Jesus is God. And you see here in these first five verses, in verses 17 through 22, Jesus is laying out for us the problem Whenever we try to achieve our own salvation, our own eternal security. The man is looking not for a savior, he's looking for a teacher. And he just happened to come across Jesus. But let's go back and let's look at what Jesus taught. You see, the man asked in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to notice in that question, he's asking him, what must I do to inherit? What must I, as a human, do to make eternal life what I need or what I am going to get at some point in the future? What do I need to do to make eternal life my right that can never be taken away? That's what he's saying. How do I earn my inheritance? And look how Jesus responds to him. You know the commandments. Notice he doesn't tell him that this is what you've got to do just yet. But he starts to list off for him basically six of the Ten Commandments. There's one there that we think he, he was combining two commandments together. And he doesn't mention the first three. He only points to the commandments. Jesus immediately points to the commandments of action. Right, The ones that you can point to over your whole life and say, well, I didn't do that. Right? I'm sure I could ask tonight, how many of you have ever murdered somebody? And we could all say, well, at least I didn't do that. Right? At least I'm not as bad as the guy sitting down in the jail. At least I didn't do that. We could say, how many of you have never committed adultery? And probably a good many of us could say, we have, at least I have never done that. 
I'm better than the guy who broke up his marriage. How many of you have never stolen anything? And probably most of us could say we legitimately have never stolen anything. Well, at least I didn't do that. You see, that's what this guy is looking for. He is looking for a list of rules that he can follow. And he can say, well, at least I didn't do what this person did. At least at, least at some point in my life, I didn't act as evil or think as evil or be as evil as this other group of people over here. And so therefore, that makes me good. Therefore, that makes me one who has earned the right to inherit my eternal life. That whenever I stand in front of the gates, I can say, you know, I may not have got it all okay, but at least I didn't do it as bad as this guy behind me, Peter. At least I didn't do it as bad as him. So how about you just go ahead and open up those gates, let me walk in, and and we won't say anything to anybody. That's really what he's going for. And that's really what he is wanting Jesus to tell him. Give me X, Y, and Z, and I will do those things, and then I know I'm good. And I want you to look here how he responds. Jesus lists all of these things. And then look at what he says in verse 20. Here's the real kicker. Jesus has listed these things, and in verse 20, this man responds... This man responds pridefully, and he says, All these I have kept from my youth. Now, the worst thing about this is, this is after Jesus has already taught his disciples that there is none who is good. This is after the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has listed out these huge commandments about murdering and having adultery and showing how the problem is in the human heart, not really in the action. That it is the heart that leads to the action where Jesus says it is not murdering is not about literally not just choking someone to death. It's about not hating someone in your heart. Adultery is not about the physical act of fornication. It is about not having lusting after someone in your heart. And then this man has the audacity to look at Jesus and say, Oh, those things? Yeah, I'm good. I've done every one of them. I have not committed those. I am good. I have abided by your law. You can almost see the wheels turning if you're picturing this in your mind you can you can start to see the wheels turning in Jesus's mind well he already knew how the guy was going to respond so the wheels didn't have to return right he knew from eternity how he's going to respond to this but you can almost see Jesus starts to think and he starts to say this man just doesn't understand what his problem is this man has not understood what it means to be good this man has not understood what it means to be holy. And so I'm going to show him. I'm going to teach him what I taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And look here what he says. Jesus looked at him. Jesus loved him. Mark is the only one of the three Gospels that record Jesus loved him. 
But you can almost imagine that when, when this love emotion came about in Christ that he kind of put his arm around the guy. Wanting to show, hey, I'm about to teach you a hard truth. And I'm doing it out of love. I'm not doing it because I hate you or because I want to prove you wrong. But I'm about to show you that what you just said is the lie you said you never committed. Notice here he said, you lack one thing. Jesus doesn't call him out on the lies he just told. He says, okay, we'll, we'll go with that understanding. But you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus went right to the man's heart. He knew this man didn't have problems with going out and strangling people. He knew he didn't have problems with committing adultery. He knew he didn't have problems with lying. He knew he didn't have problems with frauding people. He knew he didn't have a broken or terrible relationship with his parents. But he did know that in this man's heart, he treasured one thing above all. The amount of stuff he could gather on this earth. And that is why Jesus goes here. That is why Jesus goes to this place. Because he's looking into the heart of the man. And he is seeing that this is the area that this man has not surrendered to the gospel. Has not surrendered to the teaching of Christ. And he was right because look at what happens in verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful and he, because he had great possessions. This man said, you know those six commandments you listed off Jesus, I got those. I got all of those. But I forgot about love your neighbor as yourself. I, I, I forgot that this life was not about hoarding up possessions. But it was about bringing glory and honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may have heard this passage preached before. And that's often where we stop, right? Then the preacher wants to go on to a diatribe about how awful possessions are. And about how we've got to be willing to give everything over. But I want you to notice that's not where the gospel writer ends. Mark does not stop with that statement of Jesus in verse 22. Because that is not where the teachings of Jesus end. Because this is not a passage about whether we can have expensive shoes or not. Okay, This is not a passage about making sure that you drive the right brand of car. Because let's be very, very honest. According to the world standards, everyone in this room has great possessions. If you own a television, you are in the top 5% of the world's wealth. Most of the world's wealth, most of the world's people rather, spend less in their day than we spent to get to church tonight. No matter where you live, with gas prices the way they are, if you spent more than $2 in gas tonight to get to church, you spent more than 50% of the people alive today spent today. And so we have to acknowledge that all of us are wealthy. But we also have to acknowledge that really and truly, wealth is one of those things that we all think we're poor, and the guy who has $10 more than us is the one who is rich. So it's kind of a moving target. 
if I have $100, I think the guy who has 110 is rich. If I have $4 million, I think the guy that has $5 million, he's the rich one. It's always looking at someone else. But I want you to notice here, in this parable, you know, not this parable, but in this story, Jesus is not focused on the possessions because the story doesn't end in verse 22. He goes on to verse 23 and he turns around to his disciples and he has shown not only the rich young man the problem, he has shown his disciples the problem, and he immediately is going to tell them the solution. And the solution is not for us to go and give away everything and to become the poorest people on the planet. Although some may be called to do that, that is not what this passage is about. Look here what he says. He turns around and he looks at his disciples and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I want you to keep that in your mind. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then I want you to skip down to verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Do you see what Jesus is starting to really formulate in the life of his disciples? This man walks away and Jesus turns and he says, you know, it's really hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he says there between verses 22 and 27, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God. But don't miss what he also couples it with. Look there in verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, the man, the man leaves Jesus' presence and Jesus turns around and he looks at his disciples and he says, You see that guy? It's hard for people like him to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard. He's got great wealth, and it's hard. But you know what, children? It's difficult for you too. Yeah, yeah, he's not going to be able to earn his way in. But you know what, children? You're not either. And notice he uses the term children. He, got, he just got through teaching in verses 13 through 16 that we should come as children. In fact, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, Children, it's going to be hard for you too. Why? Why is it going to be hard? Because, he says, as long 
as we keep the mindset of this rich, young man. It is going to be hard for all of you to enter the kingdom. Because entering the kingdom is not about, did you murder? Did you steal? Did you bear false witness? Did you defraud? Did you sell those possessions? Because see, all of those are about what I did. All of those are about, can you run down the checklist? And can you check them off? That that's what you did. But you see, entering the kingdom of God is not about what you or I did. It's about what Christ did. You see, a rich person can't enter the kingdom of God by his wealth. A disciple who's standing next to Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry cannot enter into the kingdom apart from what Christ did. It doesn't matter if you were standing right there next to him for his entire life. If you're depending on what you did in this life, you will never enter the kingdom. Because it's not about us. It is not about what we did. Jesus here is teaching his disciples, we have a huge problem. We have a huge problem that is found, that has its origins, that has its start in the heart of humanity. And there is no amount of giving away of possessions or stopping murdering or trying to prevent you from lying or trying to prevent you from, um, from defrauding people or trying to do nice things for your mother and father that's going to overcome the heart condition of humanity. And it is not about what we did. The solution is about what Christ did. Or in the case of Mark chapter 10, what he is about to do through his death, burial, and resurrection. Because he says, for all things are possible with God. You see, the solution is not found in us. The solution to our problems is not found in anything we do. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. And as Alistair Begg has recently pointed out to anyone who would listen, when we get to the pearly gates, it's not going to be. When we get to the entrance of heaven, it's not going to be, what did you do to get here? But if that question is asked, the only correct answer is, I didn't do anything. Jesus told me to come. Jesus told me to be here and that's why I'm here that's why I stand here it's not because of any right I earn there is nothing we inherited Jesus gave it all you can almost picture that when Jesus is is doing this when Jesus is teaching this you can almost picture that the kind of wheels start turning in the disciples' minds. And they're thinking, wait, what? Hold on just a minute, Jesus. What, what, what do you mean? You mean when you said, come follow me, 
I still get into heaven if I didn't follow you? You mean whenever you, wait, what? Hold on. And Peter's the brave one that speaks up. And notice Peter's response to this. Jesus has just got through really expounding for them that they can only be saved through God because salvation is only possible through God. And Peter's reaction is, wait, hold on, just, hold on just a minute here. Now, wait, we left everything, Jesus. We left everything for you. And we followed you because you commanded us to. Doesn't that account for something? And Jesus responds in verse 29. Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Kind of seems like Jesus might be contradicting what he just taught, but he's not. You see, Jesus says that once we realize the grace that has been afforded to us, the promises of God and the salvation that he provides to his people, none of these other things matter near as much as the gospel. Does this mean that all of us somehow, whenever we become believers, we have to abandon our children and our lands and our family? That's not what he's saying. In fact, the Apostle Paul later teaches that one who does that is worse than an unbeliever. What he is saying is that whenever we understand and we truly start to grasp where we're going, the things of this world start to fade away. The things that that others focus on, we as believers in Christ are not focused upon. You know, the world tells us, go, get your big job, get your big career, earn all the money you can, step on whoever's neck you've got to in the process. As long as your house is bigger, your bank account is bigger, and your education is bigger, that's all that matters. In some circles, they even say that money... Money's the scorecard, and as long as your scorecard's bigger at the end of the day, you've won. Jesus, however, comes in and he says, Abandon all the things of this world. Care not for the pursuits of this life. Strive only after Christ. Strive only after Him. Because those who seek the things of this world have received their reward in full. But those of us who strive after Christ, we receive our reward, he says, both in this life and in the life to come. I want you to hone in here for just a minute about how Jesus says this is the solution even for what ails us today. And the best example I can think is that there is no more special event that I can think of, having both served in ministry and outside of ministry. There is no more sharpening event that I can think of 
other than going to the funeral of a believer. You ever been to the funeral of a believer? I'm sure all of you have. You know the ones where we don't have to make up anything about the person and who they were. We don't have to stretch the truth because they live their life in peace. We don't have to go and tell funny stories that they were only loosely involved in because they didn't center their life around funny stories or having a good time. We get to hear about Christ and Him crucified because that is what they live their life on. You see, that's what he's talking about. He's not saying that if you give up the big job and the huge career and then follow Jesus, that career and job's going to come back to you by the end. He's saying you're going to get what that unbelieving world could never experience. You get peace, you get hope, and you get joy. So that when you're laying on that bed, you're not screaming out. You're not screaming out wondering what is about to happen next as you take your final breath. You have peace because you know where you're going. When the world seems to cave in around you and all the things the world says could go wrong goes wrong, you still have joy because nothing on this earth has brought you value other than knowing Christ. You still have joy. You see, we know this is what he's saying because I want you to look at the end of verse 30. He tells us, I'll read verse 30 so that we can see it here. He says, Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution? Did you catch that? You see, when we come to Christ and we're, we're followers of Christ, we're not promised a stress-free, easy life. In fact, we're promised persecutions. We're promised that those who aren't believers in Christ will never understand us. We're promised that the media is not going to really look favorably on us. They don't understand a myriad of things that we do and believe and say. And that's okay. And we should not be surprised when these things happen. Persecutions are going to come. But just like the first century Christians who were being ripped apart by the lions for their faith, we still have joy. We still have hope. We still have peace because we have Christ. Because you see, Jesus here does not allow us to focus on anything other than the gospel. And he's saying that this gospel transforms us because the ending is coming. Look at what he says in verse 31. He starts to look toward the ending and he is saying what seemingly looks like losing here on the earth actually turns out to be victory. 
What, what seemingly looks like a loss here on the earth in eternity actually turns out to be winning. There is a reason we sing the hymn, Victory in Jesus. Because ultimately, our victory is in Him. And then Paul's, our Mark here is recording the teaching of Jesus that says, whatever comes about, whatever we lose for the sake of Christ, whether it's through persecution or our own standards and morals, whatever we lose, we gain in the eternal kingdom. We gain when we are with Christ. Because in the end, we have victory in Jesus. So where does this leave us, though? We have seen here in this teaching, we've, we've seen the problem that we face. We have seen Jesus teach the solution. And we have been told to keep the end in mind. But what does this mean for us as believers at the end of July and the year 2022. I think first off, it shows us that we, as those who claim the name of Christ, must keep our hearts in check. Very similar to what we discussed this morning with the Tower of Babel. We, as believers, we have transformed hearts and minds, but we still live in a sinful world. And we are still tempted by sin. Those shiny things, those things that the world has to offer, they are still tempting to us. How many of us haven't pulled up at a stoplight, looked at the car next to us and thought, man, if only I could drive that. But you know, I can't because i got to give my tithes this month. My car payment goes to the church. How many of us have thought, well, you know, I sure would like to really be able to go to the lake every weekend. Man, those people, they're posting pictures on that Facebook. And while I'm out sitting, listening to the preacher drone on and on and on, they're, they got those jet skis, man. And we start to think, well, that, that, that sounds good. But the gospel tells us that in the end it's not. And so what this tells us is that first we have to keep our hearts in check. That our hearts will deceive us. That we should trust God and not our hearts. And then secondly, we understand that we're going to face trials. Sin is tempting. Life is, is constantly dealing with sin. But we face trials differently. I purposely didn't mention something in verse 30 because I wanted to mention it now. I want you to notice here, at the latter part of verse 30, actually, actually most of verse 30, Christ says that we will receive a hundredfold, and now in this time, we will receive houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. What is he talking about? I'm one of these that believe that in those references, he's talking about the church. He, he is talking about the church. You see, we face trials very differently as believers. Because unlike unbelievers, we 
not only have the gospel that transforms our hearts and minds, we also have the community of believers in the church who care for each other, who watch out for each other, and who do life together. You see, it's often in our modern day, we start to sort of view church as, well, we go here because that's where my grandmother went and that's where my grandfather went and that's where I grew up and that's where we're going to go. But in the New Testament, church is not about where your family has been for generations. It is about saying that when we gather together as believers to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and we turn around and we look at all of the people there, that it's not just a group of people who have faces that we see on Sunday morning, but it is a group of people who we do life together with. That we hold each other accountable. That we care for each other. That we function as a community. Because these are the people that throughout all eternity we're going to be worshiping with around the throne. You see, we are gathered here in Chula, Georgia this evening. And there are people on both sides of this church. However far you got to go, we can eventually find somebody on both sides who are unbelievers. They look like us. They dress like us. They probably drive the same vehicles as us. They may even work the same job as us. And we feel like we have a lot in common with them because we can swap fishing stories and hunting stories. We can talk to them about growing up and going to the same high school. But you know, here what Jesus is talking about in verse 30 is that all those things are good and we may have similar life experiences, but do you know that if you are a believer in Christ, you have more in common with a believer in China than you do your unbelieving neighbor. You have more in common with a man who lives halfway around the world, who doesn't speak your language, wouldn't know what a fish fry was if you played a video for him, has never drove a car, never went fishing, wouldn't know how to start an engine of anything. Yet we, as believers in Christ, have more in common with him than we do our unbelieving neighbor. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. Is that we face trials differently because we as people who do live in a similar location, we are believers and we are to do life together. And that's what it means to be a church. And so I think that's what we can take away here from the rich young man. We see the problem laid out. We see Jesus' solution. And then we are told to take that solution and look toward the end. But to remember to keep our hearts in check. And to serve each other as a community and as a church at Mount Zion. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish up this evening. Lord, we thank you for us being able to come together and to study your word and to allow the gospel to be able to go forth.
Lord, we ask that you would use your, your word to change our hearts and minds and that we would be a people who are focused upon you um, as we move forward in this life. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Y'all are just